Well, uh, it was the largest amphibious attack in naval history. Uh, this is, of course, uh, what I'm talking about, D-Day, uh, what's known as D-Day, June 6, 1944. Uh, a pivotal day uh, in World War II uh, when the Allied forces stormed uh, the beaches of Normandy, France. Uh, and the, these beaches had, had code names that the Allies had given them. There was Utah, there was Omaha, there was Gold, there was Juno, and there was Sword. Uh, the one that we see uh, on Saving Private Ryan, that's Omaha Beach. That was the bloodiest uh, of the battles. Uh, and before the, the troops even uh, stormed the coast, there were air raids, uh, air attacks to try and loosen up, soften up uh, the ground before they came in there uh, and scatter the enemies. And, and by the end of D-Day, uh, 160,000 Allied forces had crossed the English Channel and set foot on uh, those beaches at Normandy. Uh, but it was a particularly bloody day, especially the battle at Omaha Beach. But all told, uh, there were over 10,000 casualties uh, on the beaches of Normandy that day with 4,414 uh, confirmed dead. It was an incredibly high price to pay. But uh, the Allies knew that they had to secure that beach. They had to secure Normandy uh, if they were going to, to get a foothold in Europe uh, from which to go on and, and attack uh, Germany from. Uh, so the Allied invasion turned out to be a turning point in the war uh, in the forces against evil led by uh, Adolf Hitler. Uh, but once the Allies controlled that beach, from there they could uh, replenish supply lines with troops and food and ammunition and everything. Uh, and it was from there that they would march to Germany and go on and end up winning the war. 1900 years earlier, there was another amphibious attack across a sea uh, against the forces of evil. It wasn't 160,000 troops going and storming the beaches of Normandy. It was one man in a little canoe that we looked at last week uh, with 12 of his disciples going across the Sea of Galilee to confront an invisible foe, a demonic foe. Uh, and so he crossed the Sea of Galilee to establish a foothold in Gentile territory uh, in the area that we know as the Decapolis, which are these uh, roughly 10 cities uh, on the south and east side of the Sea of Galilee, uh, which were predominantly Gentile. And it was a hostile territory to the Jews, but it was going to be especially hostile to Jesus because he was about to confront uh, the armies of Satan. But establishing a foothold there meant that Jesus uh, could launch a spiritual campaign, uh, a foothold there against these forces of darkness uh, in this land of the Gentiles, uh, against these forces of darkness that, that uh, oppressed people there in these Gentile regions. And so Jesus was expanding the kingdom. He was pushing the boundaries. He was giving hope to the hopeless in Gentile areas. And he conquered Satan's army there without a single human casualty. Now, we need to remember, brothers and sisters, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, right? Our struggle is against the spiritual forces of evil. And what we need to know, what we need to know is that Jesus knows about these spiritual forces of evil and that he cares. Uh, in the passage that we looked at last week, remember uh, the apostles asked Jesus, Lord, don't you care that we are perishing? And he proved that he did care by calming the sea, uh, by easing their minds, and by uh, giving them a taste of who he is. Uh, and so that's Jesus's power over nature. Now today, we're going to see that Jesus has the power over the demonic, satanic forces as well. 
And so Jesus sees our invisible enemy. He sees uh, when Satan is attacking you personally, and he does care. Uh, so he ha not, not only has the power to crush Satan, but he has the compassion and he has the desire uh, to do this as well. So let's talk about the condition of this man first. Uh, we see here that the man uh, was hopeless, verses 1 through 5. They came to the other side of the sea, into the region of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, not even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and cutting himself with stones. Well, first of all, Jesus' approach. Jesus comes to the region of the Gerasenes. Now, uh, there's a lot of debate about exactly where this was, the region of the Gerasenes. Uh, there's a place right there on the east side of the lake called Gergesa. And then uh, there's another place on the southeast side called Gadara. Uh, it was somewhere in uh, the, this area between the south and the east, most likely at a town that is now known as Cursa, which is very near to, to uh, Gergesa on the, on the direct east side of the lake. Uh, but Jesus and his army of 12 disciples landed here uh, probably in the early evening, right? After a long day of, remember the day started back in Capernaum, he was telling these parables. Uh, then there was the sea crossing and the storm on the sea and the stilling of the sea. And now uh, he's coming and it's probably nighttime uh, and he's uh, approaching the beach. Now, uh, on D-Day, uh, the Germans were firing at the Allied forces from the hills above uh, the, the, the sea from where they were approaching. Now, Jesus reached the beach safely, but as soon as he got there, that was when the spiritual battle was on. So uh, just looking at these verses 1 to 5, just imagine the torment uh, of this man. Uh, you know, for us, uh, living in and around the city of Dallas, uh, it's not uncommon for us to see mentally ill people on the streets uh, out and about, right? Maybe they're homeless uh, maybe they're drug addicted, uh, they're standing alone sometimes, they're talking, they're yelling, they're gesturing to no one in particular. Uh, these people are hopeless. They're hopeless people, and it's heartbreaking to see them. Uh, you know, no one grows up dreaming of becoming uh, addicted to drugs and, and living on the streets, right? N nobody, nobody grows up wanting that for their lives or for their children. Uh, maybe it's a product of bad decisions, or maybe uh, they're a product of a system that, that wasn't able to help them. Whatever it is, um, the, we, we see them on the street, and when we see them, you know, for our own safety, we often cross to the other side because we don't know what they might do to us. But these people are hopeless, and there's nothing that we can do to help them. So you know, we shake our heads, and we have a moment of sadness and regret over them, but then we go on with our lives. Uh, Jesus was able to help the hopeless. And so that's what we see uh, coming up in these verses. This man in Mark 5 was particularly hopeless. He was possessed by many demons and he lived in a cemetery, right? Can you imagine living in a cemetery? This is where the demon possessed, uh, the outcast, the mentally ill. Uh, that's where they lived. And it seems like people had tried to help this man before. They, they bound him. They, they bound him with chains. Uh, maybe they were just trying to restrain him, but, but, but they had given him attention at least. Uh, and, and even with the chains, uh, the demons uh, somehow made him so physically strong that he was able to, to bust the chains and no one could contain him anymore. And I'm sure after that, people just avoided him from that point uh, going forward. 
Uh, so this, the, the condition of this man, he spends his days, he spends his nights uh, among the tombs, shrieking, screaming, not in control of his own senses, cutting himself with stones. Can you imagine? Like cutting is, a, is an epidemic these days, right, among uh, younger people. Uh, and and uh, uh, they say that, that, that they do it because the, the physical pain takes their mind off the emotional pain. Uh, and it's a real problem that we're dealing with today. And, and I don't know if that's what this man was dealing with or if this is just the man uh, being controlled by these demons and the demons making him uh, do this to himself. Uh, so this is the condition of this man. He's possessed by all these demons. But, but, but Jesus sees this man uh, for who he is. Uh, he sees that, that somehow... Uh, though Satan's demons possessed and controlled this man, uh, somewhere inside this man, this pathetic man, was a human soul. Uh, and Jesus loved this man. He was hopeless. He was helpless. He was consigned to endless agony uh, being inflicted on him by these demons. But, but Jesus didn't run from evil. In fact, he crossed a sea to confront this evil uh, and, and, and uh, to defeat Satan and his demons and to rescue that man. So let's see how Jesus does it. Uh, Jesus gives hope to the hopeless, verses 6 through 13. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him and shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do you have with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had already been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the region. Now, there was a herd of large pigs, or a large herd of pigs, feeding nearby on the mountain. And the demons begged him, saying, Send us into the pigs, so that we may enter them. And Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank and into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. So, as we look at this passage, we see that, that even the demons knew that Jesus' victory over them was a foregone conclusion, right? Uh, the demons come. They, they bow down uh, before Jesus. They call him by name. They call him Son of the Most High God. And they begged uh, Jesus not to send them out of the region. And so they were powerless against Jesus, and they knew that. The war was over before it even began. Uh, the demons were only trying to negotiate favorable terms of, of surrender. That's what they were doing. And so, uh, you know, when you looked at Jesus, no one could tell that he looked any different than anyone else. He looked just like anybody else there. But somehow the demons knew. Immediately they looked at Jesus and they knew they could see who he was. And instantly uh, this demon-possessed man who no man could bind, who chains couldn't hold, who no one could control, he falls at Jesus' feet and he submits to his authority. Uh, you know, calling people by name is a way to assert authority over them. Uh, in my house growing up, when my mother said, Robert Walter Jenrick, I knew I was in a world of hurt, right? Uh, and I'm sure that's how it was in, in your house too. Uh, perhaps the demon was trying to gain some leverage over uh, Jesus by calling him by his, this name and, and by this title. Uh, but Jesus quickly flipped the script, right? And he says, what's your name? What's your name, demon? Uh, and he says, we are legion, for we are many. Now, a legion in the Roman army was 6,000 soldiers. That's a lot of soldiers. 
Uh, I don't know if that's to say that the man had 6,000 demons or if it's just uh, a, a, a euphemism for many, many demons, but there were many uh, who were living inside of this man. Now, this is not the first man or the last man to, to experience demonic possession in the Bible. We have evidence of it all over the Bible. Uh, the one that, that particularly is striking to me is Judas. Uh, Judas himself was subject to this. Uh, remember, uh, he opened himself up to evil, uh, being unsatisfied with Jesus's mission. He, he goes to the, to the Pharisees and, and says, what will, what will you give me to turn him over to you? And then in the upper room, Jesus hands Judas a morsel of, morsel of bread, remember? And it says, the text says, Satan entered him at that moment. And then he went out and he betrayed Jesus to uh, the scribes and Pharisees. So that is what demon possession can do. When we open ourselves up to uh, Satan, when we give him a foothold, uh, he can take control of our bodies. Now, I don't know if the demon-possessed man invited Satan in somehow. Uh, the, the, the text does not say. But I do know that once Satan got in, he pried the door wide open, right? And, and many, many demons, a legion of demons, uh, lived inside of this man. And so uh, I find this to be a very strong warning for us never to dabble in the occult, right? Never dabble in the occult. Uh, we may find it interesting, and, you know, there are documentaries all over the TV about it. You can find all kinds of information on this if you want to. But it is a slippery slope, a downhill uh, into uh, the occult. And once you find yourself on that slippery slope, uh, it's tough to, to get out of that. Remember in the, in the 70s and the 80s, uh, culturally, this became a phenomenon, right? With, with uh, the movies like The Exorcist and The Omen Trilogy and Rosemary's Baby and, you know, you could go on and on. Uh, naming, uh, naming these movies uh, that were coming out at the time. And, and what happened was that the public's interest was really piqued uh, in the satanic, in the occult. And, and now here we are 50 years later, and we see that Satan worship is more popular than ever. Uh, and and uh, you, know, you, can, you can find uh, satanic clubs and, and places like this uh, all over the place. Uh, so we need to be very careful of that because Satan is very clever and if we give him any kind of foothold, uh, he knows how to get in the door and to take over our lives. We may not be able to stop him and his demons from coming in. Now, if calling Jesus by name was an attempt to intimidate Jesus, well, it clearly didn't work, right? The, the, spokes, the spokes demon uh, for this group of demons that lived inside this man uh, begged uh, Jesus not to send them out of the region. Now, commentators generally agree that, that what out of the region means uh, is, is out into the wilderness, into some desolate place where there was nobody to torment. Uh, that's what that probably means. Uh, but it's interesting because in Luke's version of the story, uh, the demons begged Jesus not to send them into the abyss, uh, the abyss, which is the eternal place of torment for uh, these uh, demons. Uh, and then in Matthew's version of the story, Matthew says, uh, has the demon say, have you come to torment us before the appointed time? Uh, so the demons in that version of the story know that Jesus wins. They know that they're going to the place of etern eternal torment, and they seem to know when that time will be, at least uh, in some kind of eschatological way. They, they know that it's yet future, and they know they're going to end up in the abyss, the lake of fire. And they want to do all they can do now to destroy Jesus' kingdom and us before the appointed time. 
Now, what about these pigs? Uh, the presence of these 2,000 pigs would indicate that this is a Gentile region, right? Which we've already said, they're in a Gentile region. Uh, pigs are unclean animals to Jews, but, but the Gentiles would raise them uh, for meat. And so the, the, the demons beg Jesus to send them into the swine rather than out into uh, the unknown wilderness. And Jesus permits them to enter into the pigs. And what do the pigs do? They immediately, 2,000 of them, rush down the hill into the sea, and all of them drown. And so what we see immediately is the, the destructive power and intent uh, of these demons, strong enough to, to drive 2,000 pigs uh, to their deaths. And, and when you think about that, it's amazing that they hadn't yet killed this man. Uh, perhaps they intended to keep him alive and just inhabit him uh, forever. Uh, and so that the power that they have is incredible. Now, what about these pigs? They would have been quite valuable to their owners, right? This is the livelihood of these, of these owners. Why would Jesus allow uh, these demons to kill these pigs? Well, we're not told. Uh, a couple of suggestions. Uh, maybe he wanted everyone to know just how destructive demons are and their malevolent intent against us. Uh, we not, might not have been able to see that without this incident with the pigs. Or uh, maybe allowing the, pigs to, uh, the, the, the demons to enter the pigs would be the only tangible evidence uh, that they would have that, that, the, that the demons had actually left the man and entered into the pigs. But I think it's, it, it, it's a simpler thing than that, really. I, I think it's that Jesus wants us to know that the value of one human life compared to the value of 2,000 pigs is really incomparable. Uh, the value of human life to Jesus is such that uh, it's worth it to him uh, that 2,000 pigs die to save one soul. Uh, and that, I think, is why uh, Jesus allowed him, uh, allowed the demons to go into the swine. Just think about the plight of this man. He's naked. He's alone. He's gashing himself with stones. Night and day, he's racing among the tombs, naked, filthy, shrieking, screaming, not in possession of his faculties in any way, stronger than any man, but powerless against these demons, with no social life, obviously, at all. Uh, this man was completely hopeless. And yet Jesus gives hope even to the most hopeless so remember that when you feel like you are in a hopeless situation, when you feel like everything is going against you, when you feel like uh, you know, Jesus has, has forgotten or forsaken you, that is not true. Jesus sees you. He knows what you're going through. He loves you. He cares, and he can deliver you from it. Well, Jesus' actions here, uh, they put the, the witnesses and the townspeople right on the horns of a decision, didn't he? Uh, would they rejoice at this man's salvation, or would they resent the economic loss, and would they reject Jesus? Let's see what they do. Uh, as Jesus offers hope to the townspeople, verses 14 to 17, their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the countryside, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. And then they came to Jesus and saw the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down clothed and in his right mind, the very man who previously had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the pigs, and they began to beg him to leave their region. Well, what would you have done? Would you trade your livelihood for a person's freedom from demons? Is that a trade that you would be willing to make? 
Uh, or do we put our hope in pigs uh, and, and not in, in, in Jesus who has the ability to control, uh, to control demons and, and to rescue uh, from demon possession? Or do we put our faith in our possessions uh, rather than in Jesus? Uh, those are some of the options. The other option, of course, is to, to love people enough to sacrifice the things of this world uh, so that they might have salvation. Well, uh, Jesus puts them right on the horns of this dilemma. They have to decide. Uh, do they want Jesus or do they not want Jesus? And that's why Jesus waited around for so long, right? Like Jesus did the miracle. He didn't have to hang around after the miracle and wait for the, 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 the uh, witnesses to go into the town and into the city and tell everybody what happened and, and then have everybody come back, right? He could, have, he could have gotten right back in the boat and left, but he didn't. He waited around there because he wanted to offer himself to them. Here I am. I am the man who can free this man from demon possession. Uh, here I am. What will you do with me? Will you receive me or will you reject me? Well, when uh, these folks from the, the city arrived, uh, they see the man. He's sitting there clothed and he's in, his, in his right mind. They know who he is uh, and they're thinking, well, what do we say about this? What do we do with this? Uh, many of you uh, probably grew up watching the Andy Griffith show, right? And you remember Otis, the town drunk. Uh, Otis was always in jail for something that he did the night before. I don't know if there's ever a scene in Andy, in Andy Griffith that Otis is in where he's not behind the bars uh, and, and Andy is dispensing wisdom to him. Um, I think that the demon-possessed demon man is a lot like Otis in the, way, in, in the sense that everybody knew who he was, right? Everybody knew who this demon-possessed man was. He wasn't, uh, it wasn't like, oh, who's that guy? They knew who this man was, and they all knew his story, and they knew to avoid him because he was so dangerous and uncontrollable. And, and now here he is, sitting here, just like any of you out here, in your right mind, fully dressed uh, and reasoning. That's the condition of this man. So Jesus offered himself to the townspeople. Here's what I can do. Uh, what are you going to do with me? What, what do you want to do with me? Well, there are two choices concerning Jesus, right? One can either accept him and receive him and, and accept the blessing of salvation and all the blessings that come with that, or one can reject him. Well, what did the townspeople do? They became afraid. This is the second time we're seeing this uh, in the last two passages, right? The disciples saw the waves, and they were afraid. And now the townspeople see this demoniac uh, who's now in his right mind, and they become afraid. And so uh, the apostles couldn't stop looking at the waves, and, and these townspeople couldn't get their eyes off the economic loss uh, of the pigs and, and probably the awe of, of a man who could do this, who had this kind of power. And Jesus, in the last uh, section that we looked at, called the apostles fear. He said, have you no faith? And here, these, these folks, these townspeople, their fear is also no faith. And so they begged Jesus to leave the region. The demons begged Jesus, don't send us out into the wilderness. The townspeople begged Jesus, please leave from us. In both cases, Jesus gave them exactly what they asked for, right? Jesus is a gentleman, and if we don't want him, he's not going to force himself on us. He will leave. So that's one response to Jesus. We can reject him, uh, and we can beg him to leave. And the other response is the response of the man who had been freed from the demons. We see in these next verses that he responded in hope. 
uh, verses 18 to 20. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was begging him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him, but he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you, how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim it in Decapolis, what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. Now, if, if Jesus had healed me of a legion of de demons, uh, I would want to stick by him too. And so this man's response is perfectly understandable. Uh, while the townspeople rejected him, this man pleaded with Jesus that he, could that he would come. And that's the proper response to Jesus. That's the proper response of any disciple of Jesus. We want to be with him. When someone receives Jesus and, and feels his healing power and love, the only rational response is to want to be with the person uh, who can give you that kind of feeling. Because no one can make you whole like Jesus can. If you're here today and you're not a believer, uh, you're not whole. Uh, but Jesus can change that. He can make you whole. He can make you right with him. Uh, and he can change your life. Uh, and so uh, that was what Jesus was offering to these townspeople. But instead, uh, Jesus answers the prayer of the townspeople, but not the, the, the prayer of this demon-possessed man. So why? Uh, why would Jesus answer the demon's prayer? Why would he answer the townspeople's prayer, but not answer this man's prayer? The only believer in the story, right? He's the only believer, and Jesus doesn't answer his prayer. Well, that's because Jesus had a better plan, right? Jesus had a better plan. So uh, when you're praying for something and you're not getting the answer that you would like to get, uh, it's probably because Jesus has a better plan. And for this man, Jesus' plan was for him to go back home to his people and tell of the great things the Lord had done and how he had mercy on this man. And so this man was about to become a missionary to the very people who chose the pigs over Jesus. The word mercy means to relieve suffering. Uh, to relieve suffering, it, it's the compassionate treatment of someone in distress. And rather than leave someone in that condition, uh, if you have the power to do something about it, you do something about it. You respond with help. And Jesus had the power and he had the compassion to relieve this man's suffering. Now, mercy is one of God's great attributes. It's one of the things that makes God, God. Uh, for you and I, every one of us was suffering spiritual death. Spiritual death until God, in his great mercy, awakened us, made us see our need for a Savior, made us see the ugliness of our own sin, and, 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 and call on Jesus as Lord and Savior. Uh, and, and this could not have happened if God was not first merciful to us. We would never receive him in our own power, in our own desire. Uh, so salvation is a work of the great mercy of God to save sinners from their hopeless condition and give them new life, just like he did for this man. So this man, uh, or Jesus tells this man, go home to your hometown, go, go, go to your home people. Uh, and, and this man obeyed Jesus. And so again, uh, this man was the first Christian missionary to the Gentiles in the Decapolis. And so we see the proper response. First he believed, then he obeyed. He did what Jesus said. He went out and told everyone what Jesus had done. And Mark even records their response in verse 20. Everyone was amazed. Now, amazement doesn't equal salvation, right? Uh, it does not. It's not the same thing. But amazement does 
get people asking the right questions. Wait, tell me again what happened? Uh, how did he do this? Uh, what was that guy's name? Uh, where is he? Uh, you know, t tell us more about this guy. It gets us asking the right questions uh, about Jesus and, and gets people seeking God. And so God may have used that man's testimony to gain a foothold in the Decapolis so that many other Gentiles would seek God and the kingdom would expand from there. Now, God can use your testimony, and he can use my testimony to expand his kingdom as well. So we, too, should go forth from here and talk to our families and our neighbors and co-workers, etc., uh, about what great mercy the Lord has had on us, too. Uh, just like the parable of the soils that we saw in Mark chapter 4, we sow the seed and we let God do the work. We trust him to bring a harvest. Now, just take a minute to, to think about Jesus's love for this one man, right? Jesus and his disciples rode all the way across the Sea of Galilee and during a tempest of a storm, right, uh, before Jesus calmed that, uh, they nearly shipwrecked. They land on the beach there, uh, you know, encountered these, this demonic possession, and only a couple of hours later, they turn back around and they sail back for Capernaum again. So, they spent, you know, two, three hours maybe tops in this region called the Decapolis. And why did Jesus do it? Well, he did it to save one tormented soul. He did all that to save one tormented soul, right? Jesus leaves the 99 to save the one. He's the prodigal father going out to meet the lost son and, and bestowing gifts on him, treating him like a king when he comes home. Uh, he comes uh, not for the healthy, but for the sick. He comes to seek and to save that which is lost. That's what Jesus does. Now, of course, as he heals this one man, this is all part of his larger plan, right? To, to train up his disciples, to, to, to help them see who he is and to expand the kingdom of God, to show his power over Satan. And as I, as I said last week, every bit of teaching that Jesus did, every miracle that he performed, uh, was another brick in the wall of the disciples' faith. So that when uh, Jesus died and, and was buried and then rose again and then ascended and, and they were left to lead the church, they could look back on these things and say, oh, Jesus had the power, he had the compassion, he did care. And so they would look back on these things after Jesus was gone. And I think... What Jesus did here in this chapter was, was acting out what he talked about in Mark chapter 3. Remember when the, when the teachers of the law came uh, and they said, Jesus, you are casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul or, or Satan. And Jesus said, huh, how can Satan cast out Satan? If Satan is divided against himself, his kingdom cannot stand. That doesn't make any sense. Then he said, no one can enter a strong man's house and, and, and rob, uh, carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. That's just what Jesus did. He crossed the Sea of Galilee. He tied up Satan and his demons, and he robbed Satan's house of this one man and everybody else who believed through his testimony. And that is how the kingdom of God starts small like a mustard seed and becomes a tree large enough that the birds can rest in his branches. One unbeliever, one demon-possessed man at a time uh, becomes a believer as Jesus gives hope to the hopeless. So let's think about how we can apply this passage to our lives. The first thing is that we ought to love the outcasts like Jesus loved the outcasts. 
Uh, Jesus traveled over land and sea for one demon-possessed man. This man was the, the, the perfect example, the, the ideal, the prototypical outcast, right? You couldn't be more outcast than this man. Uh, but what we're going to see this week and, and next week as we study the woman uh, with, the, with the bleeding, with the hemorrhage, is that uh, Jesus crosses all kinds of boundaries all the time for the sake of one person. And, and Jesus was willing to do that. He loved the outcasts. Now, what I'm about to say, I'm saying to myself more than I'm saying it to you. So don't be offended. Uh, shouldn't we love the outcasts? Shouldn't we go to the outcasts? Shouldn't we help wherever we can? Shouldn't we care as much about them as Jesus cares about them? Shouldn't we get outside of our comfort zones and go into the places like Jesus did, going into Gentile territory to take on demons? Uh, that was not an easy day for Jesus, right? Um, uh, well, relatively speaking, uh, Jesus obviously had ultimate power over them, but it was a tough day, a tiring day, at least from uh, our human perspectives. Uh, we need to do that kind of thing. We need to get outside of our comfort zones, uh, go to those who are hurting, show them compassion and mercy, and share the gospel with them so that they might be saved. Uh, and we need to care about them more than our personal pigs, our personal possessions that we put so much faith in. Uh, of course we should do those things. And, and speaking for myself, uh, it's often a matter of preferring my own comfort and my own convenience uh, over someone else's hopeless plight. And I'm sure many of you can relate. Uh, I need to learn, we need to learn, that, that we are not here uh, for comfort or convenience. We are here to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And that includes loving the outcasts more than myself. And so if the kingdom is going to, to continue to grow uh, from a mustard seed to large branches, uh, our role in that is to continue to love the outcasts with the love that Jesus showed this man and the love that he showed us and just trust God with the results. So we need to love the outcasts. And second, we need to prioritize Jesus. You know, just thinking about this man again, uh, before he became demon-possessed, this man probably had a wife. He probably had a job. He might have had a family. Uh, he might have had a home. He might have had a life, right? He might have had a life. And what's the first thing he does after Jesus heals him? He says, can I come with you, Jesus? Meaning he was going to leave whatever he had behind him. And that's making Jesus his number one priority. Now, I'm not encouraging us all to leave our homes and leave our families and leave our jobs, etc., but what I am encouraging us to do is to recognize that Jesus has to be the number one priority in our lives. Uh, and we have to understand that being a disciple is hard. It's very hard work to be a disciple, to follow Jesus 24-7. It involves incredible sacrifice. You know, I started out this sermon talking about the invasion of Normandy. Uh, talk about sacrifice, right? What these young men did for our country and their families, the sacrifices they made is, is beyond our imagination. They, they were called to do a job, and they did it with astounding courage. Now, Jesus may not call us to give up our lives, but he does call us to follow him with that kind of pursuit because being a disciple is not a part-time job. Uh, it's not something we do in our spare time or, or for an hour on Sunday. Uh, it's a full-hearted co commitment to follow Jesus every day. And so this man that Jesus saved, he sent. And the man that, that, that Jesus saved, he went, right? And he did as Jesus said. Uh, when, when, when Jesus comes and touches a life, 
That life has changed, and our lives ought to reflect that change. Uh, and so he uses us for his glory, and we have to prioritize him if we are going to be his disciples. And so sometimes we put other things in front of Jesus. So uh, what's your pig, right, in this story? Uh, these people were so upset that they lost their pigs, and they were so afraid that they sent Jesus away. So what's the thing you're prioritizing over Jesus that you might value more than him, that you can't see how your life could be complete or fulfilled without him or that thing? Uh, it could be uh, your appearance. It could be money. It could be health, status, your job, uh, your degrees, uh, your, your children, your comfort, your grandchildren. It could be anything, whatever that thing is that you put up on that pedestal. Uh, that is going to put Jesus in the back seat as that thing sits in the front seat. And so anything that we consider more valuable than him are our pigs, and, and, and they will take priority over him in our lives. So where we spend our time, where we spend our money, proves where our allegiance lies. And discipleship doesn't mean that we have to uh, drown each of those pigs. It just means that we have to realign a little bit. And so uh, we have to uh, ask Jesus to help us put those things in the right order, confess uh, where we've had something that is out of priority, where we're valuing something more than Jesus, and ask him to get us realigned. Because discipleship uh, means loving Jesus sacrificially at the expense of other things oftentimes. Well, as you all know, it's Mother's Day. And uh, that's the kind of sacrificial love that I'm talking about. Uh, it, it's like a mother's love for her child. A mother always puts herself before uh, her child and, and puts herself last. I'm sorry, a mother always puts herself behind her children. She puts herself last. Uh, and so everyone else comes first. Uh, that's how it was with my mother in my house, and that's how it's been in my house with Molly and our kids, uh, always putting other people first. And so to love others, especially the outcast like that, requires uh, this, this mindset that we will put others first and put ourselves last. And, and it requires the power of the Holy Spirit working through us. We cannot do this on our own. Only the Holy Spirit working through this, uh, through us, will help us be able to do this. And if we're able to do it, we will help the hopeless, and we will expand the kingdom, and that's why we're here. Let's pray. Lord God, uh, we thank you for, for this miracle and the other miracles that we're studying in Mark that, that show, first, that you do care, uh, second, that you are powerful, and, and third, that you do act on our behalf, Lord. We just thank you for those things. Uh, we thank you for your sacrificial love, uh, for these disciples while they lived, and, and also for your sacrificial love for us by dying on the cross in our place. And Lord, uh, we thank you for that incredible sacrifice, Lord, for without it, uh, none of us could be, be saved. And Lord, we just praise you in Christ's holy name for all that you've done for us. And may we go from here, uh, reaching out to the outcasts uh, as Jesus did. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.